Matthew chapter 25 is where we're going to be, but let me just first reference chapter 24 for a moment before we read from chapter 25 and pray. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is giving to us roughly 15 major global events that are going to be happening on the world just prior to his second coming. And uh, we are seeing many of these events uh, coming to pass in our own lifetime. And if you weren't with us for chapter 24, here's just a highlight of 10 of those major global events just preceding the second coming of Christ. Things like deception by false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, famines around the world, pestilences, earthquakes, the persecution of Christians around the world, a falling away from the faith, unfortunately, that's what the Bible predicts, increased wickedness, decreased love, uh, and one positive thing is the spreading of the gospel globally. Well, near the end of chapter 24, Jesus concludes all his thoughts with this exhortation. I'll just throw it up on the screen for you from chapter 24, verse 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so at the end of Matthew 24 and into chapter 25, Jesus helps us to understand, well, what does it mean to be ready for his second coming? And in order to help us, he teaches three parables. And again, for those of you who are new to the Bible or to Christian terminology, uh, the word parable just simply means a, a story drawn from everyday life using everyday illustrations to uh, express a deeper truth. And so Jesus often employed this communication tool, teaching a parable, a story drawn from everyday life to help his hearers, or in our case, his readers, uh, understand a deeper point. Now, the main point of the parable we're about to read, like the previous two, because today's the third in the three-part series, um, is the main point is, again, about his second coming. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be watching, to be prepared. And so we're looking at each of these three parables today. Again, the last of the three-part series that I've entitled, Get Ready, Because Here I Come. All right. The temptations. You got to love them. So today is uh, parable number three. It is the longest of the three parables. And it is entitled, if you look at your Bibles, at, starting at verse 14, there's a subtitle in my Bible, in most Bibles, that, uh, that tells us what this parable is about. And it's called the Parable of the Talents. The parable of the talents there in chapter 25, starting at verse 14. Now, before I read it, a point of clarification. When the Bible uses the word talent, it doesn't mean it the way that we commonly think. We hear the word talent and we think about somebody who can really sing well or somebody who can dunk a basketball or somebody who can write a bestseller or paint a masterpiece or build a house. You know, we, we often think about talent as some exceptional human ability. And then we, you know, we just are in awe of somebody like, wow, that person's got a lot of talent. I mean, we even have a TV show about, you know, America's got talent. So, I mean, that's usually the way that we think of talent. Oh, it's some exceptional human ability. But when you read the word talent in the Bible, it never means it in terms of human ability. The word talent in the Bible was a unit of measurement. It was a weight, and it weighed roughly 75 pounds, and it was always used in relation to money, be it silver or gold. 
So in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, you can read references to a talent or multiple talents of gold or a talent or multiple talents of silver. Now, to put it in a little perspective, a single talent of silver back in Jesus' day was worth about 20 years of wages. One talent was worth about 20 years of wages. So now, as we read here from chapter 25, I'm going to read verses 14 through 30. And uh, now that you know that background, you, you'll understand as the word is used here. So Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. Jesus speaking here, again, this is a parable about getting ready for second coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Keep reading on verse 20. And so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew, that, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast, notice this, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word now, we pray that you will speak to us through this parable, that you would help us to be ready for your second coming, that we would just not hear this, but we would also be doers, being ready, anticipating joyfully your second coming. And so we pray that you would just keep us focused in that way, Lord, because we know that many things in this world can weigh down our hearts. But we pray for your just clarity, for your boldness, for your perseverance, that we would run the race and that we would finish well. And so we thank you for this time in your word together today. Bless, bless your word to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, I personally think that this uh, parable is the most difficult of the three parables to understand and for that matter to teach. Primarily because most Bible commentaries that you read and or sermons that you hear 
about this parable tend to only interpret it with an eye on the practical and not an eye on the eternal. Now, it's not wrong to look at this parable in terms of its practical aspects. In fact, we're going to do that a little bit ourselves today. But I do think that if all you do is interpret this parable as a matter of practical advice for everyday Christian living, then you will miss the greater, more important, eternal meaning of this parable. And I say eternal, we know that it has eternal significance because of the way Jesus ends the parable. If you'll notice in your Bibles again, verse 30, I just want to highlight the way it ends in verse 30. Jesus says, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now think for a moment, when you hear the phrases outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, if you have any understanding of the Bible, you know that those are idioms that refer to what? Hell. There is eternal suffering here. There are, there are consequences when you read this parable of, of eternal significance. And, and so, you know, the Bible speaks of hell as a place of unquenchable fire. Okay, so there's suffering. But oddly enough to, to us... It must be fire that does not cast off light, because in addition to the Bible saying that hell is a place of unquenchable fire, it also says it is a place of outer darkness, and it is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a, an idiom for, an idiom for um, suffering. You're, you're like, you know, you're grinding your teeth, and you're, you're weeping, you're in pain, you're in agony, you're in suffering. So all of those term, ter- terms are relative to an understanding of hell. So whatever Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable... It carries an eternal consequence, which means that if you only look at this parable for its practical advice, which again is nothing wrong, but if you only look at it for its practical advice, you will miss the greater eternal warning that Jesus has in mind. Now, before we get to the eternal perspective of this parable, let's first look at the practical, because I do think that there's value in seeing this parable as a way to help us understand principles for everyday living, especially as, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ. But again, bear in mind that this parable, like the previous two before it, has to do with being ready for the second coming of Christ. So just, you know, bear that in mind, because that's the context of what we're going to read here. Now... Having read the parable with you, let me just break it down in practical terms. Uh, This parable is about a wealthy man, a wealthy employer, who is going away maybe on vacation or a business trip, and he's going to be away for a long time, and he doesn't even say how long he's going to be away, he just is traveling. And before he travels, he entrusts to his servants or employees Um, a measure of his wealth and property for safekeeping, to manage it while he's gone. And he is careful, if you noticed in the parable, he is careful, the employer is careful to entrust only certain amounts of his wealth and property to those individuals that he knows can handle the responsibility. Because in verse 15, he proportions out his wealth, these different talents, verse 15, according to their abilities. That's important. And he entrusts more to some than he does to others 
it is proportional to their ability. Now, let me just pause here with a little commentary uh, at this point, because this is not showing preferential treatment, because he gives one guy five and another guy two and another guy one. This isn't showing preferential treatment. This is actually honoring, listen to this, this is actually honoring each individual with what they could successfully handle. Some people get passed over for promotions and then they get mad and they complain. I know I'm not talking about anybody here, but I'm just saying hypothetically, there are cases where people get passed over for promotions and they get angry about that kind of thing. And, you know, by the way, there might be illegitimate reasons why someone got passed over, okay? And we know that exists in, 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 in the workforce, and that's sad and that's wrong. But that aside for the moment, if someone is not qualified or doesn't have the proper skill set or, or the job is beyond their ability to handle successfully, then it is actually a merciful thing to pass someone over for someone else. It really is. Because to entrust a high level of responsibility to someone who lacks the skill set or the job qualifications or the temperament or the desire would crush that individual. If you load up someone with responsibility for which they are not prepared to handle, you're setting them up for failure. And this is not a good thing. So this is not showing preference This is showing deference. You're actually respecting the individual for what he or she is able to properly handle. And you're recognizing that in order that they might be the most successful in this position. This is leadership 101, folks. You don't put people in positions or give them responsibilities that would set them up for failure. You want people to succeed. So sometimes you pass over somebody. And what is happening here as this this master or lord or this employer is handing out talents, he handles out these talents proportional to the ability of the people to manage these things. And so the employer evaluates his employees. And you look at at the one dude and he goes, okay, this guy's guy's a visionary. This guy is also detailed, which is a rare combination. Most visionaries are not detailed. But I like this guy. He's got a lot of leadership skills, a lot of natural leadership, and he's very faithful. I'm going to give him five talents. Second guy looks at and he goes, not really a visionary, but he is detailed. Uh, he gets the job done as long as you can give him the tasks and when it needs to be completed. And the guy is dependable. I'm going to give him two talents. The last guy, the employer looks at, and he goes, you know, I don't even know why I have him in the company, to be honest with you. I mean, he can barely get dressed in here on time in the morning. Um, but you know what? Once in a while, he comes up with a pretty good idea and he's loyal. So I'm going to give him one talent. And that's what happens here. Uh, Now, he doesn't tell them how long he's going to be gone, and he doesn't tell them what they're supposed to do with the talents, with the resources that he has given them. He doesn't tell them any of that. Verse 15 just says that he goes away immediately on a trip. And in verse 19, it says that the boss was gone for a long time, but then he suddenly returns. You see the, the parallel in this parable, right? When Jesus talks about, okay, there was this master, there was this boss, there was this guy in charge, and he goes away and he entrusts things to the, the people there who, who are with him, who work for him, and he's coming back again, and it's going to be sudden. You, you see the language that he's using here, right? What he's communicating, all right? So 
He's gone for a long time. He returns suddenly. And when the boss returns, it says in verse 19 that he settles accounts with each of the servants, with each of the employees. So there's a, there's a day we must give an account. And while he's away, um, when he comes back, the first guy who was given five talents gives an account for what he did with the five. It, it, it says in verse 16 that he traded with them. So, you know, he's, he's trading them. And, he, and it, it sounds like he's playing the stock market a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe he's a good day trader. So, you know, he buys low, he sells high in a day, and he's, and he's making some profit. And, it, and he, doubles, he doubles the five talents to ten. And, and when his master comes back, he gives him all ten. He said, these are all yours. Now, notice that. He doesn't take a cut for himself. He doesn't say, well, you know, you only gave me five. But while you were gone, you know, I have the brains and the ability and the wherewithal to make some money off of this, which I'm going to keep for myself. No, he sees it all as belonging to the master. He's done well. He's duplicated it. He's doubled it. And he gives it all back to the master. And look at what, look at what his boss says in verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So he commends them. He commends this guy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The second guy comes along, and he gives an account for the two which he had been given, and the same scenario. He's doubled the two, now it's four. And he gives all four back to the master, and the master says almost word for word what he said to the first guy. In verse 23, he says to the second guy, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things, enter into the joy of your Lord. Same reward, proportional to what they had been entrusted. They had a return on the investment, same reward. But then the third guy comes along, who did nothing with the one talent that he had been entrusted with. In fact, the Bible says that he buries it. He not only doesn't do anything with it, he buries the talent. And then when his master returns, he just gives it back. Says, here, this is yours. Uh, Notice again, let me just read the verses again, verses 24 to 28, verse 24. It says, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Verse 26, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Now, by the way, he's not agreeing with this employee's assessment of himself. He's just simply restating it. Okay? He's not saying, yeah, I am that kind of a guy. I'm, I'm hard to work for. No, he's just saying, okay, this is your perception of me. So this is what you think. You think that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Verse 27, so you ought to have at least deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Now, in practical terms, all right, before we touch on the eternal, in practical terms, again, in the parable, the master is clearly Jesus. He's the one in charge. He's teaching us a deeper truth about his going away and coming again. And just like the master in this story, the employer uh, goes away on a trip, uh, doesn't say where he's going or for how long or when he's coming back. He just just goes, but then he comes back suddenly. This is a picture of Jesus. 
He's gone away to prepare a place for us. He's coming again to receive us. We better be ready. And in the meantime, Jesus, the master, the Lord, has entrusted to us some of his most precious, valuable commodities that we have to guard. And not only guard, we have to manage these things well. So we are the servants in this parable. Servants that Jesus has entrusted his things uh, to while he is away. And a talent... In just practical terms, a talent can represent any life resource that God has entrusted to your care. Now, I think that there are six major ways that God entrusts things to us. And all things can fall under these six major categories. I'm going to say it quickly, but I'll come back to each with a corresponding question. I think that the main places where God entrusts us, again, I'm only talking on the practical level, is with money, abilities, authority, possessions, position, and influence. In regards to money, if you are financially blessed, the question becomes, are you financially generous for the kingdom? Okay? I'm going to give a corresponding question to each of these categories. So when it comes to money, if you've been financially blessed and you're a Christ follower, the question you need to ask yourself is, am I being generous for the sake of the kingdom with what God has given me? Secondly, in the area of abilities, whatever you can do well, think for a moment, not not to brag about yourself, but you do certain things well. Whatever you can do well, are you doing it well for God? Third area is authority. If you have been put in charge of things, uh, you're in a position of management, uh, are you using that authority to promote the kingdom? The fourth category, possessions. Maybe you don't have a lot of money per se, but you have resources and possessions that can be used for the kingdom. What are you doing with those resources for the glory of God? Fifthly, position. And this can be any kind of a status in life or position, you know, in employment. So, for example... Are you a mom, a dad, a grandparent? Are you an employee or an employer? Are you a student? Are you a teacher? Are you using your position or status in life that God has given you to glorify him? And then last category is influence. If God has opened doors for you, such that you have opportunity to influence people, whether it's a little or a lot of people, Are you using that influence to impact the kingdom? So in summary, here's the questions we need to ask ourselves. What are you doing for God with what God has given you? That's the practical question of this parable. What are you doing for God with what God has given you? And how do we use our, quote, talent to benefit the kingdom and glorify God? Now, I'm going to, on this practical level, I'm going to give you just five quick observations from this parable um, that, again, I'm going to go through quickly, but you can go on the teaching library later and put me on pause and write these down. Or if you can write really quickly, here are the five things. I think just practical observations from this parable. The first one is this. Jesus, the master, owns everything. We, the servants, only manage it. So we got to remember that. Jesus, the master, owns everything. We, the servants, only manage it. Number two, Jesus expects us to use whatever he has entrusted to us for his glory. That's key. He doesn't just give us things on loan to use solely for ourselves. He wants us 
to be good stewards of it, to use it for His glory. Number three, don't be an idle person. We should be busy during the time of waiting and faithful during the delay. This is what He wants of us. This is part of what this parable teaches in practical terms. Number four, a misunderstood view of God is no excuse for poor stewardship. This last guy who buries his talent says, well, I think you're harsh. I think you're unreasonable. Okay, whatever your perception of God is, sadly, if it's bad, it's still no excuse for poor stewardship. And the last one, number five, where there is no risk for God, there will be no reward from God. Some of you, in a practical way, have the ability to be used by the Lord in various ways, but you just don't want to take the risk, whatever the risk might be. And I would just challenge you from this parable in practical terms that where there's no risk for God, there is no reward from Him. But having said all that, there is more to this parable than just good stewardship of money or abilities. And in the last 10 minutes or so we have left, I want to focus on the eternal aspect of this parable because I I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many, in my opinion, how many, for example... Self-serving pastors have used this parable as a way to raise money for their church. Um, God has blessed you with uh, money, with talents, uh, it, and it is, it is a, you know, a unit of measurement in the Bible. And so, therefore, you need to use your money for the kingdom of God. You need to give more to the church, and you, know, you need to be good stewards of your money. Okay. I've also heard this parable improperly taught as a way to shame people to serve God. It kind of goes like this. Um, you've been given some special talents, some special abilities. You've got a voice to sing. I can hear you sing. I can hear you. You've got a good voice. You know what you need? You need to be singing in a choir. If you're not singing in a choir, God's going to take your voice away and give it to somebody else. Your tongue's going to get tied by Jesus if you don't start singing for the glory of God. I don't know why I'm using a southern accent, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> And I, I've heard that over and over again. It's just like, if you don't use, God's going to take it from you. Give it to somebody else. And people have been, especially like little kids, get shamed into that kind of a thing. And this parable is used to shame people like that. So, um, among the different misuses of this parable, um, the problem with when people only interpret this in practical terms you know, you've been given abilities and talents and, and uh, finances and influence, all this stuff. If it's only interpreted in terms of the practical advice, then those people who are teaching it as only a parable about practical advice have a problem with verse 30. Because verse 30 is where Jesus concludes all of this. And he says, by the way, that last unmerciful servant is to be taken and thrown into the place where there's outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, well, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying if I don't sing for the glory of God, I'm going to hell? No. No. That's why if you only look at this for its practical aspect, you are missing the eternal significance of this parable, because for Jesus to end this whole parable with that strong exhortation, that warning at the end that there's eternal consequences, it's got to mean more than just being a good steward or a good manager of the resources that God has given you. And so here is the main point, I think, to to this parable, the eternal perspective that must be understood and that I think is sadly often overlooked. 
Now, we've already identified the fact that the master slash Lord in this parable is Jesus. He has gone away. He's coming again. That's clear. It's also clear to us that we are the servants who will have to give an account for what he has entrusted to us while he's away. So the question becomes, listen to me on this, what has Jesus entrusted to you of greatest value? And don't say a singing voice. What is the most valuable thing that he has left with us, wanting us to cherish and to duplicate? What is it? It's salvation. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ for the salvation of souls for whoever believes and receives. And that's what carries eternal weight in this parable. And that's important for us to understand. You know, when Jesus tells us the Great Commission, you know, go therefore and make disciples. He's talking about duplicating what we have received from him as the most precious commodity ever given. That's Matthew 28, 19. The Great Commission. Go therefore, make disciples, duplicate, influence the world. Okay, But in addition, it's our own personal salvation that comes from our response to the good news, the gospel. Our precious salvation that God has given to us. This is his most precious commodity that he's ever entrusted to us. What are you doing with that, you see? So a couple of verses to help us understand what I'm talking about from the scriptures. I'll put it up on, on the screen for you. And this is, this, I, I'm going with the NIV on this, but it's 2 Corinthians 4, 5 to 7. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Remember in the parable, the term for the boss was Lord or master. The parable for the rest of us, the uh, servants. So in this verse, we see that spelled right out. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, this valuable thing in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. The reference to jars of clay is a human vessel. We are made from clay. We are just, you know, earthen vessels. But God has entrusted to our earthen vessels the wonderful good news of the gospel. We hold dear our salvation in our hearts and in our lives. But it can't stay there. This has to be duplicated. We have to share what he has given us to a lost and dying world. Look at another verse. Paul would write to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, this is what he's entrusted to us, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So the whole idea here is that when God has given to us the good news of a life that can be totally transformed through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sins, we receive that precious gift. He's entrusted our salvation and the gospel to us now. What are we doing with that? Are we being faithful to what he has given us? And are we using what he has given us to influence other people for the sake of the master? So I'm convinced that a talent in this parable, the treasure is salvation slash the good news of the gospel. Not just to hold to ourselves, not just to clutch it to ourselves, but to duplicate it with others so that when the master returns, he will get a return on his investment, the duplication of souls through the advancement of the gospel, through us sharing about our own salvation in Jesus Christ. But the only way to duplicate what he has given us 
is if Christians are taking what he has left us, the good news of the gospel and the gift of salvation, and making him known to others. Listen, this is the only explanation as to why the guy with one talent was judged and ultimately sentenced to hell in the parable because he saw God as unmerciful. And so he didn't cherish what God had given him, nor did he duplicate it. He just gave it back. Here, here, you can take it back. I just buried it. I don't really want it. Thank you very much. And he gives it back. And so in essence, the master or Jesus is saying in response to him, if that's how you see me as someone unmerciful, you think that I'm unmerciful and you reject what I have given you, i.e. salvation in the interpretation, then there is no remedy for you. You judge yourself and you will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The guy with the one talent had a wrong view of God, saw him as unmerciful, and rejected the treasure, and he gave back what he had been given. Now, what do you think would have happened when you think about the early church and how when Jesus first died on a cross, rose from the dead, before, uh, and then he ascended back into heaven, he entrusted the ministry of the good news and and the whole gospel and, and, you know, the message of salvation. He entrusts it. And... The Bible says in the book of Acts that only about 120 were gathered in the upper room after Jesus ascended back into heaven. That was the seedbed of the church. Can you imagine what would have happened if that 120 had just sat in the upper room and died with it? Like, well, we're not going to really talk about this. We're not going to spread the good news. We're not going to share it, you know, for whatever reason, in the first century in particular, because their lives could be in in danger. And we're just going to sit here. We're going to cherish this, but we're not going to do anything with it. I mean, the whole gospel would have died out with 120, had they not been faithful to duplicate what God had given them and to gone out and and to sow the seeds of the gospel and, and this good news. And so this is important for us to understand. You know, the Great Commission, Jesus expects us to take what he has given us and to invest it in the lives of other people that it might be duplicated. I think that's the heart of this message. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, well, that's, I'm not really good at that. You know, Pastor G, you get paid to do that kind of thing. I don't, I don't get paid to do that kind of thing. I'm not very good. I mean, I, I'm no Billy Graham. I can't go out and start sharing my faith and seeing people converted to Jesus. That's just not me. I'm a little reserved, and this is too difficult for me. I'm no Billy Graham. Listen, listen to me on this. Um, God doesn't expect you to be Billy Graham. God expected Billy Graham to be Billy Graham. And God entrusted to Billy Graham immeasurable amounts of of, quote, talents. That was his calling. And Billy Graham was faithful to that calling until the day he died. And tens of thousands and thousands of people got saved because he was faithful with the talent that God had given him. You just have to be faithful with the talent God's given you. You see, you bloom where you are planted. You serve where you're deployed. Nothing more, nothing less. But you still have to be about your father's business and think about your sphere of influence, the position that God has called you to, what he has given you, and how you can use it to influence, even if it's just one. Even if it's just one. You don't have to be anybody else except faithful to God for who he has called you to be, where he's called you to be, and with the resources that he's given you for his glory. Listen, I I, I will tell you this in all sincerity. Uh, I've been in pastoral ministry now for about 34 years. Um, and, and I say this uh, 
just as a matter of, of giving you an understanding of, of what I'm talking about here, because I'm going to brag on my wife for a moment, but I want you to hear just in, in all humility, and I say this for the glory of God, over 34 years of ministry, I haven't like documented the numbers, but um, I've had the privilege that God has used me to probably lead thousands of people to Christ, okay? But my wife left her teaching career when we first got married and started having kids to come home and teach our kids, our three kids. I'm, I'm trying not to get choked up. I got choked up in the first service, and I'm trying not to do it here. And she exposed our three kids to the good news of the gospel and gave them a wonderful influence of a woman who loves Jesus and wanted her kids to love Jesus. And they were exposed to the Lord more every day through their faithful mom than hearing dad in the pulpit on a Sunday or Wednesday night. But my wife is going to get the same reward. I know she'll at least get hers. She's going to get the same reward that I will. And she's going to hear, and I hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. Because it's, because, listen. Don't, don't you think to yourself, well, I'm just. You know, I, I'm just a stay-at-home mom, or, or I, I'm, I'm just a custodian at a school, or I'm just... Don't you dare do that. Because where God has planted you is where he wants you to bloom. Where God has deployed you is where he wants you to serve. It's not a matter of, of quantity, okay? It's a matter of faithfulness. And God is calling us to be faithful with the good news of Jesus Christ that not only saved our souls but is something to be shared with others so that they also might be saved so that when the master returns, he gets a wonderful return on his investment. And so that every single one of us might be able to hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with the most precious commodity ever given, the gift of salvation. And Lord, you call us to be good stewards of everything that you've entrusted to us, but especially that, that we would be faithful to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus and what you have given us and duplicate it for your glory. There are people, Lord, who need the gospel. We know them. We work with them. They're in our families. They're our friends. We want to see the investment you've given into us to be duplicated in the lives of other people. And Lord, we just want to be faithful with what you've given us and where you've called us. To bloom where we've been planted. To serve where we've been deployed. So that when you come again, you will receive a wonderful return on your investment and we will be able to hear you say those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. Thank you 
Father, that you have entrusted to us something very precious. While you're away, we pray that we might use it to advance the good news in the lives of other people, to make an investment in those that you want to be saved, Lord. And we thank you for the precious gift of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. May you find us faithful, Lord, while we wait for your blessed return. We love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen.